1: Why does adversity crush some people and empower others? The answer can be found in two words mindset and choice. Actually, you can't really separate those words. The mindset is I am bigger than any obstacle. A person must choose that belief. It isn't something you win by accident or luck. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Luis DiBianco. We're fortunate that our host, Audible, is enriching lives. They are offering you, our storytellers, a free audiobook download of your choice, plus a one-month free trial of all of Audible service. And you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you, so, keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to Lewis, L O U I S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Today's guest faced and overcame huge adversity. On the road to victory, he achieved the mastery of personal and professional development. He's the founder of three successful companies, including an entertainment company, a marketing company, and a company we will learn more about called Willard Barth Enterprises. He's a successful singer-songwriter. His first album, Coming Home, had international success. His first single, Wind Dancer, hit 24 on the pop charts overseas. He has also performed on Broadway with the legendary jazz guitarist Les Paul. He's the proud co-founder and president of the Seventh Power, a New Jersey-based nonprofit that promotes empowerment and charitable community support. Get ready for some fun and inspiration with Willard Barth. Willard, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life.
0: Hey, Lewis, it's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. I'm, I'm so honored.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm honored as well. Let's begin at the beginning where were you born willard
0: i was actually born in a small town in central pennsylvania that up until google maps came out wasn't even on the old rand mcnally maps that's how small it was but uh it was outside outside of a little town called lock haven pennsylvania
1: oh lock haven pennsylvania Mm -hmm. and who would you say influenced you the most when you were a boy
0: well that's a great question um I would say one of the most influential people for me was a phys ed teacher from my elementary school. His name was Harold McKenzie. Um, And when I had lost my leg at eight years old, he really was uh, influential in teaching me how to overcome that and really physically be active in the ways that I didn't think I was going to be able to be active anymore. So he was definitely a huge influence.
1: So, you just kind of glossed over, you know, when I lost my leg at eight years old. (laughs) So, uh, maybe you should tell us a little bit about that. Sure,
0: sure, not a problem. Yeah, I I was eight years old, and uh, I was diagnosed with bone cancer, and uh, I I ended up having my leg amputated uh, December 20th of 1973.
1: Wow. That, I mean, how, how did... When that happened, I mean, after the amputation, what was your first emotional and mental reaction?
0: Um, You know, it it was complex, you know, in the sense of, here's an eight-year-old child that when I went into the hospital, they were initially going to be doing a biopsy to see whether it was something that was operable or whether they'd have to amputate. But, I mean, in 1973, when you heard the word cancer, in a child's mind, there wasn't any option other than death or amputation. You know, I mean, I didn't understand the concept that they could possibly just remove the bone, even if the doctor came back and said, you know, it's, it's an operable tumor. But when he came in to inform me that, that, you know, they weren't going to be able to save my leg, they were going to have to amputate it. There was a part of me that already accepted that. Um, now inside though, it, 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 Launched me in almost a split personality in one way I became a mega achiever in the sense of anything that I thought I couldn't do or that I thought people would tell me That I was not going to be able to do I Set my mind that I was not going to be anything any different than anybody else and I was going to make it happen so at uh, 15 years old I started making my living as a musician performing uh, in, a, in a rock band uh, I became the first licensed amputee motorcyclist in Pennsylvania I lettered in junior high school wrestling. I lettered in high school football, and I had my first business by the time I was 19 years old. So, to the outside world, it seemed like I was the the shining example of how a child deals with the loss of a leg. But inside, uh, it shook the foundation of my identity. It it shook my religious and spiritual beliefs of going, you know, what what did I do at eight years old that was so bad that I was being punished? Mm. So. So it, uh, you know, there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of uh, low self-worth, low self-esteem, a lot of questions. And the same way that I excelled in the good things in life, I also started down a very dark path um, that culminated in a lot of um, traumatic experiences, you you, you could say. I started drinking and using drugs when I was 13 years old. And the same way that I excelled at everything else, I excelled at that, you know, until, uh, you know, at, uh, 20 years old, I was facing five to eight years in jail. And I did a total of 12 months between jails, halfway house, and the rehabs before I finally ended up waking up one morning when I was 24 and going, you know what, this, This is not the life I thought I would be living when I grew up and made the decision to transform my life. And that's really what's led me to where I am today. Wow.
1: (laughs) I guess we could end the podcast right here. We've got a pretty interesting story, right? Um, You know, what did you go to jail for?
0: Uh, The official term for it was failure to obey. So what happened was it was 1984 and I had gotten four drunk driving arrests, DUIs, within a five-month period. And in that day and age, we didn't have computers and the internet linking things the way that we do now. So each time that I went to court it was treated as a first offense. So I would get probation and a suspended sentence for jail. So it was like, you know, one year suspended sentence and one year probation in place of that. And then I ended up getting a fifth DUI, almost a year to the day after I got my first DUI. And by that time, the other four were now on my record. So I was facing four years just for violating my probation on all of those other things and now since this was a fifth offense that had happened I was facing a harsher sentence uh, for this being a fifth offense so I was facing five to eight uh, again five to eight years for the combined number of them but they didn't put me in jail for the DUIs. what they ended up putting me in jail for was when I was facing five to eight years in jail I wasn't even 21 years old yet I wasn't even old enough to legally drink And I was still invincible and immortal in my mind and still drinking heavily. And I decided, you know what, I'm not going to jail. So I packed up my car and I left the state that I was getting in trouble in. And I spent the next year avoiding probation, avoiding police, avoiding all these things. So ultimately what I went to jail for was called fair you to obey because I never went to my probation officers or followed any of the other sentences that they had given me.
1: Did you journal any of that when you were um, on the run?
0: Not really. And if I did, uh, I I lost so much of material possessions while I was on the run. uh, I I don't really have much left from that portion of my life.
1: What would you say was maybe the biggest learning, valuable lesson that you got while you were running?
0: Oh, there's so many. I mean, you know, one of the questions I'm often asked when people hear the full story of of the things that I went through in my life is, you know, if you could change anything, what would you change? And my answer is always the same that I wouldn't change anything because I believe every one of those experiences, even the most painful, the most traumatic, the most damaging were part of the fabric that that ended up transforming me into who I am today. I would say one of the greatest lessons learned was um, Hmm. while I was on the run or just in that whole experience? I know you asked a specific question. I want to honor it.
1: Uh, You can talk about the whole experience. I mean, yeah.
0: Well, I I think one of the most valuable lessons learned um, for me that stands out is there was a period of time where I was going to 12-step meetings based on being ordered to go by the court. And I had no intention at that time of getting sober. I mean, I would actually go to these 12-step meetings already half drunk and I would have more beer in my vehicle planning on finishing getting drunk after I left the meeting. Um, again, I had, I had no intention of changing. But there was one meeting, it was in Glen Burnie, Maryland, where i attended and i can still remember the the color of the t-shirt the gentleman was wearing who was who was leading the meeting the his haircut his mustache sadly since i was already half drunk i don't really remember too much of his facial features but i do remember those things and he came up to me at the end of the meeting and he said i know you're not ready for this now he goes but if ever you decide that you want to get serious about this and straighten things up in your life here's my number, give me a call. And years later that dramatically impacted me because I was brought up you know, in, a, in a very small town where your phone number was a very personal and private thing. You, know, you were granting people an intimate access to you. And to have somebody who didn't know me at all willing to give me that type of access and willing to help me without asking anything in return later on in my life, dramatically impacted me. At the moment, I just kind of brushed it off because I was young, drunk, and stupid. But later on, that was, that was huge for me transforming my own life and for doing what I do now.
1: That is a great story. Now, I would venture to guess that you weren't stupid. You were young. Drunk and ang- young, drunk and angry.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But you know, say, as one of my mentors says, I wasn't stupid; I was doing stupid. So that's. But yes, there was a lot of anger in there. Yeah.
1: You know, when you say things like, "I didn't really want to change," I would go to the meetings, and have beer in my car. I mean, that to me is a perfect image of um, rebellion. You know, you were a rebel, It was like. Oh, screw them. And it was like when you say screw them to the world, you're saying uh, the world did something bad to me and I'm going to show them I'm not going to listen to them anymore. You know?
0: Absolutely. That, that was my mentality um, since the time right after I lost my leg. Again, a lot of it came back to the disruption in my religious and spiritual beliefs of going, and this was kind of my thought process, circling back to one of your questions earlier. After I lost my leg, I can remember going to Sunday school shortly after I was able to be mobile again, and the Sunday school teacher asking me, you know, so Willie, that was the nickname that they called me back then, thank God nobody calls me that nowadays, but, um, you know, she goes, so tell us, why do you think God did this to you? And the first question in my mind was, wow, that's a really screwed up question to ask. (laughs) But the answer that came to my mind and what I verbally said to her were two different things. You know, I said to her, well, you know, I think the reason that God did this was to show the bad people that if he's willing to do this to a good kid like me, they better watch out because they're really in trouble. And as every one of those words was coming out of my mouth, I was sitting there going, if that's what God is like, I don't want a relationship with him anymore. And I ended up doing exactly what you said. I became so angry. I, I turned my back on everything that I had been brought up to believe was right and good. And, and you know, I I just became the total rebel and the total antithesis of of everything. I pushed my family away. I pushed friends away. And, you know, I did it for two reasons. One, I figured if I was being damaged like this and hurt and punished like this, I didn't want anybody else around me to get hurt as collateral damage. Uh, And the other was just because I felt like I was not worth anything. I didn't deserve the love, the concern, the support from other people.
1: You said that you, the words came out of your mouth, but you were thinking something else. What were you thinking, you remember? For the teacher.
0: Well the, the the part that I was thinking was just that, you know, the everything I'm saying right now is what I want her to hear, not what I'm really thinking. And and what I was thinking was pretty much what I had just said of going, if this is what if this is what God is like, I don't want to have any type of interaction with him. Oh, no, no, right, no, right. Exactly.
1: Now, did you ever get a prosthetic
0: leg? Yeah, yep. About six months after my leg was amputated, I had my first uh, leg. And up until I was 27 years old, I probably had close to 30 prosthetics because as a child growing, I would have to get a new one almost every six months. Do you wear one today? No. No? No. When you went
1: to jail, you had one?
0: Um I did, but in, I think I, I was in five different jails and in a couple of them, they would not allow me to have the prosthetic. Wow. Mm, man. Yeah, it was kind of kind of silly, but they were concerned that the prosthetic could be used as a weapon, and I guess they didn't perceive that the crutches could also be used as one.
1: Probably a better, a better weapon <laughs> with, with a crutch, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you have yep. a long. You have a longer reach. You
0: know? Exactly.
1: <laughs> was there a pivotal moment or event that completely changed the tra- the trajectory of your life?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, that would have been August 17th of 1989. Um, I I had been arrested for my, I, I was definitely an overachiever and I, and I wanted to make sure I got everything right. So I got arrested for my sixth DUI on July 12th of 1989. Um, stayed, well, let me change that. I was going to say stayed sober, but actually I, I didn't drink for about a month. And I knew I was going to court on August 22nd. And I knew I was going to go back to jail. There was no way that I was going to avoid going to jail on this one. so on August 16th, I decided that I was going to go out and I was going to get drunk one last time. And I did. I went out that night and there were two uh, two bars in two small towns that were kind of close to each other. And I was bouncing back and forth between those two bars all night long. And the next morning I woke up in a parking lot about 20 miles away behind the wheel of a car, not knowing how I got there. I drove in a blackout and I woke up that morning and two things happened that dramatically shifted things. Now, I also want to say that there was a stacking of experiences that had stacked up to this point, but these two things were, you know, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back or that, that put me at the tipping point. And the first thing was, when I woke up that morning, I had a shift of one sentence. It was just a slight shift, but made all the difference in the world. And what that shift was, is I woke up and I said, you know what, I'm, I don't drink and use drugs because I have problems. I have problems because I drink and use drugs. And although people had told me that for years, there's a difference between when you're told something and when you actually accept it and take responsibility. And that morning, I woke up and I took responsibility of going, I'm the one that's causing my problems. There's nobody else to blame other than me. That was the first thing. And the second thing that happened was at that point in my life, I didn't care whether I lived or died. I actually wanted to die. I would put myself in situations hoping that somebody would take me out. But I still had a respect for other people's lives. And that morning when I woke up, there, it had become the habit when I would wake up in the morning, I would walk around my car to see if there were any dents or anything in it because I I drove in a lot of blackouts. And that morning when I woke up, I, I had, again, the realization that one of these days I was gonna wake up and I was going to not only see a dent, I was going to see blood. Somebody was going to have died from my actions and I was gonna spend the rest of my life living the fact that i destroyed somebody else's dreams i destroyed somebody else's i robbed them of their wedding their children all those things and i just wasn't willing to do that i i was ready to die myself but i would not i just couldn't live with the idea that if i ended up doing that to somebody i would have to spend every day of the rest of my life being aware that i did that to somebody else and that was that was the that was the morning that i made the decision i was done
1: now, you had already done your one year in prison?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I had, I had spent that time in jail from the age 22 to 23. It was almost, it was, I had gotten out of the final jail uh, August 8th of 1988. So it was just a little over a year later that I finally made the decision to turn my life around.
1: Wow. But do you remember the first steps you took to turn it around?
0: First steps I took was, it was the memory of that man who gave me the card many, many years before. Um, like It was probably five years earlier that he gave me that that card. And the first step in my mind really was going, if there was one person out there that was willing to help me, there's got to be others. There's got to be other people who have stopped living this kind of insanity and are willing to help. And it, it set me to looking for where I could find other people who successfully stopped drinking and built a productive life for themselves. So that was, that was the first step that I took of seeking out other people who had already paved the way.
1: Hmm. Wonderful. And you found, I guess.
0: Yes. Yep. Absolutely.
1: Now you have musical talent. Tell us about that. I mean, and yeah, yeah.
0: Um. By, by, I don't want to say accident because I don't believe in accidents. But at the age of six years old, I was singing just, you know, as you do in church. And it was recognized by the minister and the choir director. They, they loved my voice. So they started inviting me to, to sing solos at church at six years old. And that that grew where I started singing at a bunch of different local churches at the age of 15, I ended up joining my first rock band, uh, and made my living as a musician, partially uh, from the time I was 15 till I was 27. Like I said, at 19, I started my own business, but you know, it was it was my dream of growing up was to you know become a success in, in the music industry, to become a rock star, as it were. Um, and I pursued that dream played in in different bands uh, Finally in 19. Oh goodness. When was it around? 1992 1993 I started pursuing a solo career where I started writing and recording my own music um, Released a CD that you had mentioned in the intro released a CD around 99-2000 one of those tracks uh, went to 24 on the charts overseas Created a 17-year friendship with Les Paul. Performed with him probably close to 100 times on Broadway, um, and yeah, that was that was that was my musical journey.
1: That's exciting. It really is. And do you feel yeah. that that talent enriches the work you do today?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, people ask me many times, you know, how how does a musician, especially someone who not only performs other people's music, but writes and creates their own, how does somebody stop doing that and then move into this totally different field? And what I've learned over the years is that what I loved about the music was the creativity, you know, creating something. And now I'm doing the same thing with my, my work as a speaker and as a business consultant and running a coaching academy, I'm just creating things that have a further reach and a longer impact than a three-minute song or a two-hour concert. Mm. You know, now the, work, now the work that I'm doing, it impacts people for life. And, you know, although I loved performing, it was... I completed that part of my journey when I when I completed recording the CD I remember sitting in the in the control room and hearing the music coming back through the speakers and there wasn't anybody else in the studio it was just me listening to it and there was that moment of going this is perfect in the sense of there's nothing I would change there was nothing that you know wasn't finished yet excuse me and after having completed that it was okay for me to let that part come to an end in my life and now move on to the next thing um but yeah i mean the that that ability to create that ability to pull things out of thin air and 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 think of things that are outside the box that i used in music definitely applies to everything i do today
1: Mm. (laughs) and now how did, did you discover your life's work
0: uh, again, as I always have to pre-frame and saying, I don't believe in accidents, but it happened totally by accident. <laughs> you know, I, I when I started the journey of transforming my own life, I really immersed myself in learning. I was studying human behavior, psychology, personal development, spirituality, looking into different religions, looking into scientific approaches of why we do what we do. And about eight years into the journey, I attended. A uh, Tony Robbins seminar excuse me and while I was there it was a four-day event there were many people who were in the audience sitting around me asking me to help them understand what was being taught and the staff that that was working at the event noticed that I was kind of coaching all these people so they came to talk to me over the weekend learned a bit about my story my history and they offered me a job working as a coach for the company And uh, over time and conversations, I ended up taking a part-time job as a coach because I was at the time also working in New York City as a DJ and doing very well there. And I wasn't willing to walk away from it at that point. But because of my background as a musician and my background as a DJ, they quickly, meaning Tony's company, quickly transitioned me from being a one-to-one coach to putting me into corporate facilitation because I was comfortable being in front of rooms and comfortable speaking. And uh, I started working on training people in sales and team building and leadership and communication. And that's really what ended up transitioning my career ultimately. Did you work closely with Tony himself? No, I mean, uh, I worked for Tony's company, but even at that time, I, that was between 97 and 99. Back then, um, Tony was so busy that even the people who ran some of his partner companies with them, they would have to schedule an appointment a year in advance to get on his calendar. Wow. Uh, did have the opportunity to meet with him a couple of times, which was, you know, which was great. But as far as personal interactions with them, they were very limited.
1: Hmm. Great stories. Great stories. Now, how, why is it important? Do you believe to carefully choose every word we say?
0: Uh, great question you know one of the things about communication is one word means a hundred different things to a hundred different people everybody attaches their own imagery to what the word means their own uh, their own feelings emotional connection to those things I'll give you an example there's a an example that I use when I'm speaking in front of a crowd and there can be a hundred people in the room And I'll say to them, I'm going to say a word in a moment. I'll let you know when I'm getting ready to say it. And I want you to capture the very first thing that comes to mind. Just pay attention to the first thing that comes to mind when I say this word. And then I'll get them ready and say, here comes the word, dog. Simple, three-letter word. And then I start asking the question, when I said that word, how many of you actually saw an image of a dog, either a picture or a moving picture, but how many of you, the first thing that happened was you saw an image of a dog? And anywhere between 50 to 65% of the room will raise their hands. And then how many of you heard a dog? You might've heard a dog bark. You might've said a dog's name. You might've said the word cat, but it was a sound that you heard. How many of you had a feeling? And we get all that. And then I go back to the largest group who, pretty much always is is the people who saw an image. I'll say, okay, how many of you saw a Chihuahua? How many of you saw a Great Dane? How many of you saw a St. Bernard? How many of you saw? And by the time you start getting clarity on what specifically they saw, Uh, out of a hundred people, there are no two people in that room who saw or had the same representation of a three-letter word. mm
1: -hmm. And this is
0: the same thing that happens when you're having a conversation with somebody we all have what I call our frame of reference, meaning based on where we grew up, the family we grew up in, the community we grew up in, the culture we grew up in, the school we went to, the religious bent, the the political bent, we have several words in our vocabulary that have very specific meaning to us that when we're speaking to another person, it's 180 degrees different of what that word means to them. So choosing the words that we use when we communicate is is extremely important, but even more so, recognizing that when someone else is communicating with you, you need to ask for clarity of what those words mean to them and not just take it at face value of what they're saying.
1: Mm-hmm. And I would go a step further. I would say we really be got to be, we must be careful about all the words that we say to
0: ourselves. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yes.
1: Matter of fact, I'm going to start introducing a short additional podcast, um, in my show, which is going to be a one word story, a little dissert, you know, not dissertation, but uh, a rap, if you like, about a one word story, mm-hmm. because sometimes one word is so charged and we use these words without thinking about them, and they're affecting our happiness or freedom, etc.
0: I agree 100%. Absolutely. And the two most powerful words in the universe I am. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Whatever, because, feel, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever follows those two words, and the challenge is people use them so freely when they say, I am fill in the blank, and they'll use things like procrastinator, loser, not worthy, not deserving, all these things, it automatically puts everything in your subconscious mind into play to support you in that identity that you just claimed.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's precisely why I have this show, because of the power of language as a story that defines who we are. So thanks for that. While we're on the topic of language, what are your feelings about the word try? <laughs> have, you
0: seen, have you seen any of my videos where I discussed that word? I have. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't the one where I was doing the Yoda imitation. I actually did that on TV one time and uh, it's, it's out there. Um, no, I, didn't,
1: I didn't see that, but that would be great because uh, Mr. Yoda is the one who said there is no try, do or do not Ooh. do. Yeah. Huh? Do or do not. There is no try.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I think try is one of the most debilitating words that we have been taught to use as a culture. You know, as children, we're taught, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, which I really, really respect the intention behind, and the challenge is... Uh, there's an exercise that I do and you may have seen it where I'll hold my phone or a can of Altoids or something, just hold something in my hand and I'll tell the person I'm standing with to try to take this out of my hand and they'll be a little perplexed, but they'll pick it up. And I was like, great. I appreciate you taking the phone, but that's not what I asked you to do. I asked you to try to take the phone out of my hand and they'll put it back in my hand and they'll look at me perplexed again and then they will just leave it lay there and I'll go, Again, great job of leaving the phone laying in my hand, but that's not what I asked you to do. Specifically, try to take the phone out of my hand. And they'll go back and forth on this. I've had people 15 minutes on stage just not getting it. And at some point, it's finally a breakdown in the audience where somebody says, you're going to either do it or you're not. And it's 100% true. We use the word try to give ourselves a bailout. You know, if somebody says, Hey, Lewis, can you come and help me move on uh, Saturday? I need somebody to help me move some furniture. And you respond, yeah, I'll try. Do you have any intention of showing up? I do not. Exactly. And the person that you just said that you'll try to also recognizes you're not going to be there. Mm-hmm. But if you really are going to do it, you wouldn't say you're going to try. You'd say, yeah, I'll be there. What time do you need me? 12, 1, 3? Hey. What exactly. time? Exactly.
1: Exactly. So, and uh, and I think it's really good to practice if you're not going to do it to say you know what uh, I won't be there. I'm sorry but I'm I, I I'm not going to be there.
0: Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. I think the challenge is that so many people don't want to hurt people's feelings that they they overcommit to things. That's another challenge that people have. Or they, they, they basically lie to them by saying, yeah, I'll try when really you have no intention of trying. Learn to be honest, learn to be authentic, learn to be able to say, you know what, I'm sorry, I've got something else going on that day that I just can't change.
1: Once again, I agree with you 100%. <laughs> <laughs> now, what is the anatomy of transformation? And why is it vital for any business?
0: So the anatomy of transformation is a, a methodology that I uncovered when one of my mentors and I were speaking and he said, look, Willard, there are a lot of people who have overcome uh, you know, an amputation due to cancer. They've overcome drug and alcohol addiction. They've overcome being in jail. They've overcome being homeless. They've overcome being a quarter of a million dollars in debt. They've overcome being abused. He goes, but there's no one that I know that's overcome all of them and helps other people grow their businesses and do the things you do. And he said, "What is, what are the, as he called them, the organizing principles that have allowed you to do that? And it took me a good six to nine months to really drill down and get to the truth. My first answer was flippant and and egotistical. First answer was I took responsibility and then I tapped into my inner strength. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, there's so much more to that. What really did I do that allowed me to overcome these things? And then what is it that I do with my clients that helps them? And over the next, like I said, probably six to nine months, I discovered this system, this framework that I had used, I've used with my clients and also in conversations with every other successful person that I would have, whether I worked with them or not, In talking to them, I recognized that they went through this same framework for them to transform, whether it was their physical health, their relationships, their finances, their business, everybody had to go through these phases and use these principles to be able to transform.
1: And can you give us, don't keep it a secret, (laughs) uh, what is the framework?
0: Well, uh, the framework actually has three components uh, to 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 go into all of it. We'd have to do several more podcasts because uh, the 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 book itself is 251 pages. So I, I can give you the speed reader's version of it. Is one of the first components I talk about are the seven phases of transformation. I don't call these steps because two of them you don't have any power in them. It's just a phase that you're in. Then, uh, the other parts you're, you're, you're moving from one phase to the next. So these are what I call the seven phases of transformation. No matter what it is in your life, something that you're phenomenal at now, at some point you are in phase one, which I call ignorance. And ignorance is not meant to demean anybody or demean anything. It just means that you are in a state of not knowing. You are in a state of not being aware. You know, so even though you are phenomenal at, at doing podcasts now, There was a point in your life where you didn't know what a podcast was. And I can say that with confidence because there was a point when you and I were younger that podcasts didn't exist. So we didn't know what they were. We were ignorant of what that technology was or what it would become. Now, the second phase is when we become aware. Now, awareness can come either because of pain. You know, we're doing something and it's not serving us and it's causing pain in our lives. Or it may... Awareness may come because we have a conversation with somebody and they introduce us to a concept an idea Something that we never had thought of before it hadn't been in our frame of reference phase three is taking responsibility and There's two parts to taking responsibility one taking responsibility for where you are now Meaning if you're not happy with something in your life, you have to stop blaming everybody else I mean, whether, whether it's losing a leg to cancer, whether it's the death of a family member, whether it's a traumatic experience that happened to you, you know, there are things that happen that are outside of our control. But the one thing that is always in our control are the choices that we make and the actions that we take based on those experiences. And when we stop blaming everybody else or everything else for why these things happen and say, okay, I'm here because of my choices and my actions. Now we've empowered ourselves to take responsibility and moving forward. And we can now make the choices and take the actions that will help us become who we desire to be. Phase four is what I call immersion. Phase four is how committed am I to making this transformation? Again, it's about taking the word try out of your language And getting to that point of immersing yourself in that level of commitment, that there will be nothing, nothing that will stop you from making this transformation. Step five is what I call interdependence. You know, to me, there are only two ways in life to learn something. One is through the school of trial and error, which we call the school of hard knocks. And the other is through the school of other people's experience. Standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before learning from the mentors who who have already cleared the path learning from their mistakes and the Interdependence again for for truly transforming for me was key I mean every area of my life whether it's been cleaning up the drugs and the alcohol building businesses musical success It's come because of sitting down having conversations with other people who are already on the path and further ahead than me on the path whether that was over a cup of coffee, whether that was reading a book, whether that was attending a seminar, whether that was paying them to coach or mentor me, it was about learning from their experience, being interdependent with them. Step six is, excuse me, not step, but phase six <clears throat> is what I call ownership. That's when you've spent enough time immersed in the process and learning from others who you're, you're gathering that information from to where it becomes a part of who you are. You know, no longer are you a person who's unsure of what's going on, but you've got so much of it that you live it, you breathe it, it's a part of your identity now. And phase seven, again, is one that you you can consciously have control over, which is called influence, but really the greatest influence just comes by you living on purpose and living having made that transformation, because just through your actions, you're influencing others and you're inspiring others for them to step into their own greatness. So that's the seven phases. Then there's what I call the three cornerstones, three more pieces that, that allow that framework to, to most effectively be applied. Uh, and then seven other, what I call keys to success and fulfillment. So it's, it's a very full framework, but the beauty of it, the reason I love it so much is because when you have the framework You can place that framework over anything, whether it's over your health, whether it's over your finances, whether it's over your relationship, whether it's over running your business, whether it's over your sales department, whether it's over your administrative department, your HR, and you can go through all those phases applied specifically to that piece that you wanna work on. So the framework allows the flexibility. I love it. Um, You've written a book about this? Yes, yeah, it's called The Anatomy of Transformation.
1: And is available on um, on Amazon.
0: It is available on Amazon. It's available as a, a Kindle version. It's available uh, as as the book itself. It's also available on Audible.com uh, for people who like the audio version. And uh, it, it, I w- will ask your permission before I give this. If you're okay with it, I actually have a special offer where people can get the book for free with just paying the shipping and handling, as long as they're in the continental United. Well, not continental, but within the United States.
1: Yeah, sure. My, okay. uh, my Canadian listeners are going to, uh, lynch you, but, uh, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I live in Canada. I live in, uh, Toronto myself. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, know a- that. That's okay. No, no, certainly you can make that offer. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if I ever told you, you know, when I was born, the first word that came out of my mouth.
0: No. What is it? P- podcast. <laughs> Okay. You were born quite recently then, weren't you? I got <laughs> Very nice. You were quite the visionary at that point.
1: I was, you know, I was. Awesome. Now, <laughs> what's the best approach to clearly defining your business and identifying your ideal client?
0: Oh, great question. There's actually a process I take my clients through for identifying your business. And it's three very simple questions, it seems, but I have had clients six hours to answer these three questions. But the three questions are very, very basic and fundamental. Number one, what do you do at your core? When you break it down to being able to explain it to a kindergartner, when you look at it at your most, most fundamental level, what is it that you do at your core? The second question is, what differentiates you from the competition? Um, you know, if, if, if you were at a trade show and you had your three biggest competitors sitting next to you, and I was standing in front of you with a check for a million dollars, and if you could truly tell me what differentiates you from the others, I would give you that check for a million dollars, and I would also sign a contract with you that I would do a million dollars worth of business every year for the rest of my life, Tell me what differentiates you. And I, 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 I challenge people to, to very much push back on that. You know, every time I hear something that they say that their competitors say, yeah, I'm like, oh, your, your competitors all just said the same thing. What really differentiates you? And then the third thing is, what is the benefit to your clients of doing business with you? and i've i've gone into work with companies that have business for 20 30 years and they can't answer that question. All they want to talk about is the features and advantages. They want to talk about, talk about them 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 and their process and what they do and the new cool thing that they developed and they don't mention one word about what's in it for the client. You know, what that means to the client and how the client is actually going to get you know something from investing in them and when you're able to answer what you do at your core what differentiates you and what really your client benefits from your product or service now you can zero in even more on who your ideal client is and who you'll be able to serve based on what you do what differentiates you on, and what the benefits are
1: hmm and what what is the difference between a client and a customer in your eyes
0: Oh, huge huge difference uh, one of my mentors I, I love this man to death uh, Jay Abraham he introduced me to this idea back when I was working for Tony back in the uh, late 90s I, I saw him do a presentation there was only about 20 of us there Tony had brought him in to speak to us and uh, he said you know stop treating people like customers and start treating them like clients he said if you look in the dictionary the definition for customer is someone who purchases a product or a service. Whereas a client is someone who comes under the care, guidance, and protection of. And he said, which would you rather be? If you were on the receiving end, would you rather be a customer that is just transactional? Or would you rather be a client that it's all about the relationship and it's all about making sure that you're taken care of at the best and highest level? And and I, I just grabbed onto that and I have held onto that for over 20 years now.
1: Yeah, Jay Abraham uh, stands out. He's um, he's very special. This concept of... Uh, what's concept? I mean, his notion of becoming... Um, uh, what's the word? One word. It's... Um, preeminence. Preeminence. There it is. Yep. How to become preeminent. The only game in town. Yep. Yeah.
0: It's like... Uh, all the guy's... Huh? All the guys who are the names in the industry out there now, Frank Kern, uh, Brunson, uh, Mike Kennig, all these, you know, Brendan Bouchard, all of them are standing on the shoulders of Jay Abraham. He was doing that stuff in brick and mortar businesses before the Internet existed. And and he's just, he's phenomenal.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. I've uh, I've heard him speak. I have uh, one of his books. And uh, uh, whenever I get a chance to listen to him on a podcast, I do. Yeah. What is the secret in your mind to a great client customer service and to scaling a business?
0: I think the secret to great client service is, again, recognizing, knowing your ideal client so well. I take people through a process with identifying their ideal client that we get down to a very specific ideal client avatar. Uh, it is either male or female. It's not both. It is a very specific age it's not an age range they're married or single they have a certain number of kids I mean we get extremely extremely detailed on it and a lot of clients push back on doing this because they're like yeah but it's not just gonna be one person who does business with me and I say I know but the thing that we want to focus on is who is the ideal client that you're gonna target your marketing to the other people will come to you and you'll do the business with But when you know your ideal client so well, you know their sex, their age, the number of children, what type of job they have, where they live at, the type of income they have. You also know what keeps them up at night. What do they fight with their spouse about when they get home from work? What are their hobbies? What are the things that they love? When you can create that avatar, now you're able to serve them at the highest level because you know what their needs are. People buy products and services because they're trying to solve a problem or heal a pain. And if you don't know specifically what that problem is, or what that pain is, what you end up doing is marketing to everybody, but selling to no one. Because you have to know what your clients needs are and let them know that you are the best at serving, serving them and healing that pain, or solving that problem.
1: I love that idea. I'm just wondering, I was thinking of um you know the, the the fitness chain called Planet Fitness? Yep. So if I was opening a Planet Fitness and I know that I'm definitely going to be having male and female clients, how do I create the avatar?
0: Well, for me, Planet Fitness, based on what I know about their business model, they don't really care about an ideal client. Because what what I understand as far, and I have not spoken with the founders of Planet Fitness, but what I understand through conversations around their business model is they're not looking to service the client. What they're looking at is getting as many people signing up as possible who will allow their credit cards to be hit for a nominal amount of money and not cancel the membership. So they're basically generating revenue on a recurring revenue basis that they don't have to serve those clients. I don't see them as being an example of... Um, you know, preeminence in a Jay Abraham thing of how they're really focusing on serving a specific need. But you look at another health chain curves, you know, curves recognized that there was a niche for them to focus on with women in the fitness arena. Mm
1: -hmm. And they did
0: a lot of things to make sure that they focused on that niche. They changed the type of equipment that they used, they changed the way that things were set up rather than having things isolated where people were working on they actually put some of their machines in a circle so the women could communicate with each other while they were working out on different things and have more of a community vibe um you know i i, I truly again let, let let's take it away from the fitness thing for a minute One of the examples that I use when I'm talking about this identifying your ideal client and your niche is Facebook. You know, Facebook was very specific when they started on who they were trying to target. They were started out targeting male Harvard University students. Yeah, they did. It's true. And what happened was as they got more males using it, they recognized what some of the needs of their ideal client were, and they expanded what the offering of the software was or of the website was to attract more of their ideal client. And that ended up morphing a little bit to where now it was about attracting you know men and women to the user base, but it started out with a very, very specific niche that it was focused on. And as the client asked for more, it grew more. Then they went to another Ivy League school, but they didn't connect the Harvard Facebook with the second school that they went to. They were totally independent of each other. They didn't start networking those individual uh, universities together until later on when their ideal client again demanded it, they wanted it. Then they interconnected the universities. Now, Facebook is the biggest social media platform that exists right now, but it all happened because they mastered their niche so well that people were outside knocking on the door saying, we want in. And they opened up the doors to let other people in. And when you become the master of your niche, that's what happens.
1: Yeah, I hear you. That's um, wonderfully expressed. Mm -hmm. Who is your ideal client?
0: My ideal client is a 45 year old male. He is married, he's a business owner, been in business between one to three years. He's had some of the bumps and bruises with business. He's getting to that point where <clears throat> what he thought was going to give him time freedom and financial freedom is actually starting to be golden handcuffs where he's spending all of his time working and not getting the time or the financial freedom that he hoped for. But he is passionate, extremely passionate about wanting to make a difference. He didn't get into business just because he thought he was going to get rich at it. There was a need that he saw that needed to be filled, and he knew that he could fill that need. Uh, I can get deeper into it, but that's, that's the high-level view of who my ideal client is.
1: It's very specific and very clear. Yeah. Now, if you could instantly change just one thing in the world, what would it be?
0: Everybody's need to be right.
1: Ah, I love that. Yeah, I love you know, when that. I love when T Harv used to say, "I tell you what, you be right, I'll be rich."
0: <laughs> or I also used to like like what Wayne Dyer Wayne Dyer used to say. Would you rather be right or happy? Yeah.
1: You know? Well, actually, I, 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 I love what you just said because I I used to have a very very strong. Need to be right. It was a knee-jerk reaction, and it made a lot of my communication confrontational. Yep. Now I find that when I'm a lot, I'm able to be detached, and not worry about being recognized as right. That I have much more power.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree, and 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 I think my hallucination is, if people would give up this fight to be right. War would end, religious conflict would end, racism would end, um, you know, the, the the polarity on economic things would end, you know, it's just about recognizing that that we are all here, we all have our own perceptions, mine's not better than yours, mine is mine, yours is yours, God bless.
1: I, my friend, I got to share with you, you're familiar with Peter Diamandis? Yes, yes. Peter talks about defining your MPT. I'm sorry, your no MTP, your massively transformative purpose. Mm -hmm. And I've defined mine as raising the global conversation around let me start that again, to create a borderless world by raising the global conversation around who we are through the power of storytelling. And it's related to what you're saying, because if we raise that global conversation about who we are, we will have to recognize that we all are the same and it will require us to
0: stop being right. I agree 100 percent. Absolutely.
1: Now, besides your own book, what is your favorite book?
0: (laughs) (laughs) great question uh i have several i mean um god transformative books for me of course tony's books i love uh robert kiyosaki's rich dad poor dad really transformed my mindset around money and and what was possible um conversations with god by neil donald walsh was was transformative um i've read so many books I, you know what actually one of the most recent ones that I think is phenomenal is extreme ownership are you familiar I, with that I, I who wrote it I, I don't remember the name of the authors right now but they are two former Navy seals who are currently business consultants and they were they were deployed with uh, Chris Kyle the gentleman who we know from American sniper but the book is just about you know, as it says extreme ownership you have to be 100% responsible for owning everything as a leader and you know if something's going wrong you can't blame it on your team you can't blame it on other people you got to take the responsibility for it and they they wrote the book from the perspective of here are some of the leadership skills and how they applied in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan then here were the principles behind those leadership skills and here's how you can apply them in business And I just thought, you know, their level of, of just taking responsibility, you know, I mean, if you're going to be a leader, leader isn't, leadership isn't about a title. It's about who you are at your core. Mm. And I just thought, I thought they did a great job for it. Now, I've also found that the book resonates much more with men than it does with women, because these guys are definitely coming from, you know, masculine, masculine energy and perspective on things. But that, that's probably one of my most favorite recent books that I've read.
1: Hmm, do you think they're coming from a masculine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: just, a <little> <laughs>
1: just, a little, just a little bit, you know. <laughs> and what is your favorite quote, Willard?
0: My favorite quote uh, I've actually adapted and adopted from Neil Don Walsh, which is Life begins at the end of your comfort zone.
1: I've heard that one a lot. Who, who did you adapt it from?
0: neil donald walsh the author of uh, conversations with god yeah to me to me that one statement has so many different facets you know that so many of us live inside of our comfort zone because we're not willing to step past our fears not willing to step past our limiting beliefs and when we do push back push past that comfort zone a whole new world of possibility opens up because of new options new opportunities new ways of looking at things and also, I believe that we're we're in this human form to create, and we can't create until we go past what is the norm. We have to go into new territory. Um, so if if we stay inside of our comfort zone, all we're doing is really reliving the same things over and over again. So life really, really does begin at the end of our comfort zone.
1: I intend to open the first. Um, uh, what what we're going to call the first branch of CA, which is, uh, comfort anonymous. Because, because <laughs> I, I think we're all addicted to the drug of comfort.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, right. And
1: it, literally, I mean, it, it, it has a powerful addictive pull that stops us from growing. Mm-hmm. You know? How can people contact you?
0: Um Definitely, you can uh, find me on Facebook, Willard Barth. If you look that up, you've got, of course, my personal page, and then I also have my business page, which is the Anatomy of Transformation. Uh, LinkedIn, all those different things. Or the easiest place to find me is my website, which is willardbarth.com. W-I-L-L-A-R-D as in David, B is in boy, A-R-T is in Tom, H.com. And then, uh, the one other way, which I was just mentioning earlier, and, and my apologies, just, it's amazing just to ship it across the border. The cost of shipping can go up 200% to 300%. Um, but uh, there, there is an offer for people who would like to get the Anatomy of Transformation book. Um, you can go to taotbook.com. You can get, uh, the physical copy of the book and, the ebook version for just the cost of shipping and handling.
1: That's beautiful. Now the ebook version can a Canadian get that?
0: Yes, absolutely. For free
1: for like, because there's no shipping and handling for that.
0: (laughs) Right. I I think the people who are paying for the Kindle version might be upset if I'm just, if I'm just sending it for free though.
1: Oh, Uh, I don't know. Well, you know what? Um, People who listen to my show, Mm-hmm. Have access to uh, a free download of their choice on Audible. So I'm going to oh. highly recommend that they go and pick this book up because I, I know it's going to be life changing just from the bit that we discussed okay. here today, you know. And you also mentioned there was a site related to the anatomy of transformation.
0: Uh, well, there's a, there's a site where they can get the book. If they go to willardbarth.com, also they can get more information about the anatomy of transformation there.
1: Okay, good. Yep. And any final thoughts, my friend?
0: Hmm. We've covered a lot of different territory. I, 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 I think the closing thought that I would like to share with people is, you know, remember that... No matter where you are right now, no matter how hard things may seem, no matter how great things may seem, you know, the life of, of your choosing is out there. And it really is about making that decision and also recognizing that for the people around you. You may have, you know, a spouse, a friend, a child who is struggling right now and not on the path that you believe they should be on. And recognize that if, that, that if I can turn my life around, and there are many other people out there that are examples of, of being, you know, at the bottom floor, you know, the lowest place that the elevator can take them to and turning their lives around, anybody can do it. It's about making that decision to move in that direction of transformation and then, you know, holding on for the ride because there's going to be ups and downs. It's about staying committed to the final destination there's a there's a phrase that one of my mentors taught me over 20 years ago called rigid flexibility being rigidly committed to the outcome and flexible in how you get there but you can transform any area of your life as long as you're committed that would that would really be my thing and i hope that this conversation between lewis and i has has inspired you to to think you know what are what are some of the things i can raise my standards in? what are some of the areas that i can become more of what i'm capable of because you have a beautiful gift inside of you and it's up to you to make that a reality
1: thank you so much man thank you you know some experts or people who present themselves in experts are great at bullshit mm-hmm. you're not one of them you're uh, you. you can't fake um your clarity. And your authenticity, my friend, it comes across. It comes across energetically. And um, that's a gift. And you've given that gift to my listeners today. So thank you very much.
0: Oh, My absolute pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Louis. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to continuing our, our conversation, our friendship, and, and finding ways that we can support each other. And thank you for all those beautiful things you just said. I truly, truly appreciate it.
1: And thank you for going to the same barber that I do.
0: My pleasure on that one.
1: Thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Willard Barth. I think you will agree that he is a very inspiring human being. You can sense his joyful life, his great spirit. And knowing his story, that is quite admirable because... He certainly had some major obstacles to overcome. Pay this forward. Let people know that they can receive this inspiration at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. And at that website, you can access and download the free audiobook that I have created for you. Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Once again, we talked about books today, and Willard mentioned that he has a very powerful book. You got some insight into the book in the podcast. It's called The Anatomy of a Transformation by Willard Barth you can get it on Audible. Own it as an audiobook, absolutely free. All you need to do is go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and search for the title, download the book and it's yours and have access also for one month to all of Audible's service. I would like to know from you what you would love to learn about storytelling that you believe would enrich your life, would give you greater confidence, would make you a better communicator, would help you to make more money. Whatever it is that you would like to know, send me that request to lose club L O U S C L U B at Gmail. Dot .com willard spoke about many incredible things that can empower your life let's jump right to the very final thought that he left us with that the life of your choosing is waiting for you right now you can make it materialize by making a decision is there something that you dream about having in your life that you know would fulfill you on a on a deep level, that for whatever reason you haven't gone after, you haven't claimed it, begin now. Use the inspiration you received from today's guest and ask yourself this question, How can I change my story and change my life?